departure or some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Our partner Lambda Days just announced their CFP. Go to their website and submit a talk for a chance to present your work on their stage in February. Find out more at www.lambdadays.org slash lambdadays2020. Call for papers. If you know of any of the conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery has a Patreon page. If that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Parker, and this week with us we have Pragmatic Andy and Pragmatic Dave Thomas. Thank you both for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Totally our pleasure. And... You're on as guest because you have a new slash new version of the book, Pragmatic Programmer, coming out for its 20th anniversary. So I figured we'd start with what prompted the 20th anniversary release. I know I've seen Dave give his 10 or 15 years later at some user groups out here in the area when he's come by, but what prompted the full release of a rewrite of the book, essentially? We'd been talking about it kind of... Not real seriously, but sort of, you know, every couple of years, it's like, you know, we probably ought to open up that big old can of worms and dig in there and take a look at it. But time just didn't seem right. We were busy with other projects, so we never really seriously considered it. And every so often, every, oh, I don't know, 12, 18 months or so, we would get a notification from Pearson, the publisher, that it was going to another printing. And did we have any typos or corrections? And so this last round came around. It's like, you know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary. This would be a reasonable time to take a look at this again and see, is there stuff we want to change? Is there enough things we need to do? So we started looking at it and got all kinds of ideas and said, okay, well, you know, the time's right. We've got some time in our, our various schedules. Let's, let's just dive in and do it. And so we dove in and we did it. And we found a lot of interesting things along the way. Yeah, that was the funny thing, because when we first started doing this, we again fell into the how hard could it be trap. And we discovered that although doing the kind of light housekeeping pass, which is basically get rid of all the embarrassing old tech, that wasn't so bad. But the real surprise, I guess, is that I guess maybe subconsciously in the 20 years since we first published it, we've been talking about principles in the book and we've been you know, talking to other people about what they do. So we learned quite a lot. And as we went through the book, we kept bumping into sections where we thought, you know what, we've got a better way of explaining that now, or we've got a different way, or even, you know, uh, we don't necessarily agree with that much anymore, and we're going to change it. So what started off as a kind of light housekeeping job ended up being, I would say it's a pretty decent rewrite. Now, I don't think any of the tips have actually survived without being changed to some extent. And quite a few of them we either dropped altogether or totally rewritten. So it ended up being actually quite a fun exercise. It's not often you get the opportunity to correct history. And that's what we had the opportunity to do with this book. Oh, and hopefully we did a better job than, you know, George Lucas did. So <laughs> that was, That's low. Now, Han still shoots first in our version, so we're good there. But, yeah. I mean, it is, it's an interesting you know, kind of artistic, creative question. There were some things we looked at where it's like, okay, you know, maybe this isn't expressed as well as we'd like, but it's become known this, you know, this is a classic thing. You know, this has taken on a life of its own. So like classic scene from one of these movies, we didn't touch a lot of that stuff. A lot of the things that people have, have grown familiar with and sort of depended on and the things that have become part of the vernacular, part of the conversation, we took care to leave those untouched, leave those alone. Well, yeah, to a point. But I mean, things like DRY, for example, which has become something of a standard acronym. The problem with it is that over the years, 
it's been subverted to mean something different to the way we actually meant it to be. And so when it came time to look at that section, we, yeah, we wanted to keep dry, but at the same time, we wanted to explain it in a different way because we wanted to kind of stop the rot, if you like. Typically, all ideas as they get older accumulate cruft. And in this particular case, you wanted to kind of brush all that cruft away and get back to the original meaning. So that dry section is actually, I would guess that's probably largely rewritten. So the concept's still there, the meaning is still there, but the explanation is totally different. And I think that's true of a lot of sections of the book. So it may even have the same little story, the same anecdote, you know, some of the same examples, but we did a substantial amount of work to kind of remold it according to today's sensibilities and today's practices, which obviously a lot's changed in 20 years. Were there any other things that, and I've heard Eric Evans talk about his domain-driven design 10 years later thing, where he's like, I made a mistake of putting all the important stuff in the back of the book, and if I could rewrite the book magically, I'd have put it in the front. Did you all come across any of those kinds of things? I know you mentioned the dry stuff, but were there any other things that said, this completely got lost, or we didn't make the point, and we think probably because it was in the back of the book and people flipped through or the way that it was ordered. Did you find any of those kinds of structurings that were getting uh, lost it, all the time as well? Yeah, I didn't think so in that particular way because the pragmatic program was never written to be read sequentially. Some people do, but honestly, it's almost written to be a bathroom book in that each of those topics is give or take the length of a bathroom break, if you want. So it really is meant to be dipped into and read as you please. What I think did happen is that we found there was a difference in level between the front of the book and the back of the book, or in particular, the last two chapters in the book, where we get into projects and teams and this kind of thing. And that's always kind of rankled on me a little bit, I think probably on both of us. But at the same time, when we first wrote it, we had no idea what to do about that. I don't think the advice was bad. I just don't think it was at the same level of abstraction, if you like, as the rest of the book. And so this time around, we've done a fair amount of work to change that and try to make it on par with everything else in the book. So that's a change. I'm not too sure it's because people didn't read to the end of the book as much as just that was a, a structural change that really just was needed. One structural change we have made, though, is that we have added a tip at the beginning and added a tip at the very end which kind of wraps it up. And both of them are to do with personal responsibility and to some extent ethics. So it's, it's your responsibility to yourself and then your responsibility to everybody else. And I think they give a kind of nice frame for the rest of the book because they basically say, this is not a book of abstract ideas. This is a book about how you are changing the world. And you need to take hold of that and you need to take responsibility for it. And so I think that's if anything, that is the structural change that I'm most pleased with because it, it really does reflect this idea that as an industry, we've grown up. We're no longer just hacking in basements. And the stuff we do changes people's lives. And so we need to be thinking about that a little bit more. You talked about structural changes. I also noticed in reading the beta, you got rid of a major structural change under the covers and that I saw you were documenting as your use text everywhere as much as you can tip that you're actually able to use text this time. And my understanding, if I remember right, was that was one of those things that said, this has got to be a better way to publish the book that led you to help start the pragmatic press, right? Pragmatic bookshelf. Yeah. And what's funny is that's, that's still kind of an ongoing debate in the industry. So pragmatic bookshelf is our publishing company that we started in 2003 and we've published, ah, I've lost count. We're up around 300, 350 titles, I think, by now, somewhere in that neighborhood. And yeah, it's all driven by plain text. And there's a you know build machine up in the cloud. And there's all the sorts of things you'd see on a project. And the Pragmatic Programmer book itself, we don't own the copyright to. It was published by Addison Wesley, which is owned by Pearson. And you know, we were able to work with them. And graciously, they allowed us to use our processes and our methods to produce this book, but that is still very much a rarity. You know, there when we first approached them, it was business as usual. Oh, you want to write a book or revise a book? Great, send us a Word file. And that's kind of where everyone is used to starting. 
And yeah, I mean, obviously, this is one of those things we, we talk about and have talked about for 20 years that, you know, the drawbacks of that kind of a method, that kind of a process. And it's funny, I mean, publishing is one of those, it was good enough for Gutenberg, it's good enough kind of late adopters. So. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting, too, in terms of our approach is very much one that is uh, rooted in agility. I mean, not like ostentatiously, but just because that's the way we think. And so a lot of what we do is based on feedback. So we'll be sending stuff out and does that work? Does this work? Whatever else. And they're not used to that either. So not only the tools, but also the speed with which we change stuff is a little bit disconcerting for them, I think. So there are some questions that were raised that are important questions for them. I'm not going to say what they are because I don't want them to remember. But there were questions that were raised that they have to get answered back in like January, February. It's now June, and they still haven't actually come back to us with those. It's just, it's a different way of looking at it. Partly, I think it's because we know it can be done. We know we can get a book out in a small number of months, whereas they look at 18 months. And that's just a different way of looking at things. And there's compromises that we both have to make to make that happen. It's not just them. I mean, you know, we. Oh, yeah. We typically get a book out once the author has finished writing it and the quote final draft is done and it has to be copy edited and indexed and laid out and, and all that. It takes us 8, 10, 12 weeks, something in that order. My wife wrote a textbook for a large academic publishing company. And when they finished the first draft, it was 18 months before it saw the light of day. And no one in that world thought that was unusual or uncommon. And of course, in tech, 18 months, that's four versions of Rails and probably 450 new JavaScript frameworks have come and gone. You know, people have been born and died in that kind of time frame. Probably not the same people. Hopefully not the same people, but we don't have that luxury. You know, this is a yeah. fast-moving industry. You can't have the luxury of a 200-year-old billion-dollar company taking your time about things you just can't do it. Well, yeah, and you've got to be careful because they are, they are doing a good job given that they are basically steering a super tanker. You know? They are not going to sit there and throw away the processes that work for them simply because some upstarts come along and say, hey, if you use Markdown, it goes quicker. They have to take their time simply because the cost of making a mistake for them is incredibly high. You know? Whereas for us, we make a mistake, we go, oops, apologize, and then change it around. So I think it's kind of like Kent Beck's idea of when companies change character when they get to a certain size, and you can't expect a big company to act in the same way that you expect a small company to, you know? But I mean, for us, we just couldn't imagine another way of doing it. I mean, coming back to the plain text thing, so one of the ways that publishers typically work is that you write your manuscript and you submit it. Some publishers give you like a word style sheet or whatever they call it. And you're supposed to tag things with like chapter and section and this kind of stuff. And you send a word file to them and they then import it into, in the old days it was FrameMaker, nowadays it's InDesign. And at that point, the word document gets thrown away because it's no longer accurate because as it gets imported to InDesign, changes get made and everything else. Then all of the rest of the process, like copy edit, takes place in InDesign. And that means that as an author, you no longer have access to the primary version of your book. All they can do is send you PDFs or paper and you mark it up and then they go back and make the changes. So you can imagine how inefficient that is when we're in a world where we are issuing you know, a new version of the beta book once a week. I mean, that just basically couldn't be done. So that is also one of the big, big drivers for keeping this thing in text, plain text, and having just like a one, one workflow end to end. So the same document that an author writes is the one that's actually used to typeset the book. Don't discount the amount of community involvement as well. I mean, you know, again, a traditional publishing process is very much what we would think of as waterfall. No one sees the book until it's delivered by the truckloads at midnight, you know, like, like a big Harry Potter opening party, you know, the book shows up and everyone gets to see it. And, you know, if there's some large mistake or some error, well, oops, <laughs> you know, kind of too late. 
Whereas with our beta process, you know, the community gets involvement while the author's still working on the book. So even for us in this case, most of the content we ended up with was already in the first beta, but we still got tons of great suggestions, eagle eyes pointing out things we had done wrong, typos, you know, little mistakes we made, things that weren't clear. So, you know, it's a great chance for feedback. It's a great chance for readers to get involved and be part of the process you know, much more like you'd see on, on an open source project or something like that. And it's that you were taking a lot of your pragmatic tips that you even mentioned in the first one and that you were able to make that and be treat that as you do your code. You have the ultimate source file. Everything gets made from the source. You build it, you threw your pipelines, you, you mentioned you have it in source control. So if this file changes for the source file, it's text, I version it, I know what, and I can see the differences. And that from what I've heard about the Pragmatic Bookshelf and the way you've structured everything through various talks and just in hearing you all, it's you took what you advocated and you've taken that advantage and used that when you're writing books instead of saying, here's the way that this other software has to work or this other stuff has to work and that you're able to take advantage and even leverage it, the fact for the 20th anniversary edition when you weren't able to necessarily be in that position to leverage it the first time around. That's interesting because actually we did leverage it the first time around. It's we just didn't know any better, right? We, yeah, we did. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. The publishing. It's like, I, Dave and I don't know anything about publishing. So it's like, well, hell set it up like a software project. We know how to do that. So, right. you know, but, I mean, the, the point is, I think really we didn't take the advice from the book. I think both the book and the way we did it come from the same place, which is our kind of instinct about how we do stuff. I think that we've both been developing software long enough that we have built up a kind of set of reflexes, I guess. So the idea of looking for feedback, the idea of automation, the idea of being able to test what you're doing, all of those things are just like natural to us. And I'm sure they are incredibly annoying to people that know us because we just like, extend them into just about everything we do. So there's a consistency there, but the consistency comes not because we followed the original book, but because that's the way we did things. But there's another interesting point in there too, and you kind of mentioned it in passing, Proctor, that every now and then we would bump into something which the easiest way to do it would be to go with the flow and take on whatever industry thing is the way to do it. And every now and then, when we came across those things, we had to make a decision. And that is, do we go with the way we believe is the right way, or do we go the easy way? And when I phrase it like that, it's going to sound like an obvious decision. But at the time, it's actually kind of like, there's only two of us, and we're trying to hack away on everything at the same time. Can we afford to invest in our confidence, if you like? And pretty much universally in the tool chain, when we decided to compromise, we ended up going back to it later on and changing it to the way we wanted to do it. The things that survive are the things that are all consistent with just like one way of doing it. And I think that comes back to the idea of agility as well, that one of the reasons that agility fails is that you cannot have an agile software development team in a non-agile company. The two just don't interact. And I think the same is true of the processes that you use. If you choose a way of doing things that is, quote, agile, unquote, then if you allow non-agile things into it, then that impedance mismatch will basically hold you up, if not stop you altogether. And I wasn't necessarily implying the dichotomy of the way you do the book to what you said, but more that that mindset, that mentality of what you're advocating and practices comes through even when you're working on the book publishing that says, these are the things that we believe. We've even written them down to say, hey, we believe these are the things to do. And then you take that and apply it outside of just software process, back to the responsibility of that you mentioned that you've put the bookend in tips in. And I think that's part of the, some people have said, well, you know, what's the secret of success to this book? You know, how has it lasted so strong for 20 years? 20 years for any kind of tech book, any kind of software development book, that's pretty unusual. Most of the stuff, even the things we publish, has a shelf life about that of sour cream. It just doesn't last long. And this really has stood the test of time. And I think a good part of that was these weren't things that we thought would be a good idea, you know, in kind of an abstract theoretical sense. 
This was stuff we were doing at the time and kept doing at the time. So it was more of documenting what we were currently working in and telling clients back when we were consulting. It was just writing down what was already happening rather than trying to sort of invent some new theory out of, out of whole cloth and saying, thou shalt go do it this way. No, this was what we were actually doing. This is, this is how we do things. This is still how we do things. And I think that's why it was popular 20 years ago and why it's popular now. But it was also one of the reasons the book was initially at least kind of hard to write because I, don't, I can't speak for Andy, but I kept getting this sense as I was writing it of, this is obvious. Why is this going to work? Because it's like, I don't know, brush your teeth kind of advice. You know, That's I mean, yeah. Okay. Obvious. It, yeah, absolutely. It's the brush, yeah. eat your broccoli. Yeah, you know. Oh, I've done, Sad, done the broccoli thing. Sadly, it's not that obvious. No, I, I, wish, it were. I wish it were. But as Andy said, I mean, for us back then and it's still now, it's just kind of like common sense. As, as you say, common sense is not all that common. Yeah, I think the best quote I heard about that was, What's common sense to you is common sense to you. And that's one of those things I have to remind myself when I start encountering things in the bigger corporations, when I'm having to try and take some of these mindsets that I've essentially grown up with through my career that were like, yes, why would you do this any other way? This is exactly. You've got to be very, very careful, though. It's a combination of you have to have the courage of believing that your common sense is a valuable base. But you also have to have the courage again, I guess, to say, hey, but I wonder if it's right. Because to some extent, if you say my common sense is my common sense, then to some extent what you're doing is saying, I'm going to do things my way. And that kind of closes the door on improvement. So I think one of the things that's really important whenever you talk about good practices or common sense is deliberately to change it, deliberately to try different things. And if it doesn't work, you can always go back to your way. But if it turns out that, hey, you know what? They actually had a point. Then you can integrate that into your thinking. And the cool thing about that is that if you integrate a new way of doing something into your kind of common sense knowledge base, then quite often that will change both the thing that you were specifically looking at, but it also might have ripple on effects into other areas of what you do. So if you learn that you know, the world doesn't die if you do a release every three minutes, then that's going to change quite a lot of the way you behave. So it's actually it's a really interesting process. I mean, I think the main, the main thing is just to remain conscious throughout the whole process and just never do things on autopilot. That's a really good point. And we make a very similar point throughout the book where obviously we start saying don't trust other people's code and here's you know, various techniques for that and whatnot. We'll make the point, don't really trust yourself either. So just because you've always done it this way or you think is common sense, we make the point several times, always take small steps and verify it, validate it, you know, test it out. Yes, that's worked for you every time. Maybe it's not going to work this time. You write your unit test, you do this, you do whatever to get the feedback to make sure you're still going in the right direction. And as Dave just said, try something new, try something different, but validate it. And if it doesn't work better, okay, well, why not? What's different? Well, that might be something useful that you could use on the next project. Maybe it's not suitable for this one. But you've learned from the experience. You've learned from trying, from getting feedback. And that, that to me, is really the critical part. You know, someone said, I don't, it's an unfair question, but it's like, yeah, what could you distill the book down to? It's like, take small steps and try stuff. Talk about that small steps and verify. We'd like to put little epigraph quote things at the start of tips. And on the section that talked about that, I wanted to put that saying that Reagan always used to use that then became kind of like a mantra, which was trust but verify. And so I went and did a bit of research on that just to make sure because I you know, didn't want to put down attributions that were wrong and discovered that actually it wasn't initially a Reagan phrase. It was actually a Russian phrase. It's a Russian folk phrase, which in Russian, and I'm not even going to try it, actually has a really nice cadence to it. It's kind of rhymes, the two words rhyme and everything else. But apparently when he was going across for the meetings with Gorbachev, he actually asked his advisors, you know, can you come up with some Russian phrases that I could use? And because he was an actor, he was very good at learning lines and he learned some of these Russian phrases and apparently very much enchanted Gorbachev by every now and then rolling out a phrase in Russian at these meetings. 
And then I read that apparently he went over the top and started using it like every second sentence, which was kind of like, okay, you can stop now. So there's an interesting case of our working right in action, right? Here's this little tiny factoid, this little tidbit, this little bit of curiosity, right? The seed of curiosity. Where did this phrase come from? And you pull that thread and you dig down the rabbit hole. And here's this very fleshed out, very interesting story behind this. And that's really part of what both Dave and I, and I hope everyone who reads the book does, some little question comes up, some little thing, hey, why is this this way? How did this thing get to be this? Where did this come from? What's the source of this? Why was GoTo considered harmful? Whatever it might be. Why is FP better than OO? Is it better than OO? Any of these little questions, you pull on that thread. You know, don't just idly wonder it, but look it up. Google for it. Well, in the old days, it was Alta Vista for it, but that just didn't roll off the tongue nearly as well. And it, you know, 20 years from now, it might not, not, you may have to Facebook for it. I, who knows? It'll be, you know, something. No, 20 minutes from now, you won't even have to worry because your brain will just tell you. So exactly, right. You get that direct, you know, I know jujitsu, yeah. neural implant. But yeah, digging in to all these little threads and finding out about it and kind of pack ratting these little bits of knowledge, these little, little adventures away, that's really critical. And not just on the technical stuff, but again, where was Reagan when he was thinking these things? How did this fall into history? How did this impact whatnot? All these little bits and pieces that you just sort of pack right away and accumulate all help. They help you make more informed decisions. They help you ask better questions when things come up. So that's one of those huge, what's one of those techniques I can do to get better at my job, get better at what I do? It's that. Pull on the threads, dig in, ask the five whys. Ask why. Where did this come from? Why is this this way? Can I do this different? Can I do this better? And it was more that my common sense and your common sense, even though they might not be aligned, all stem from pretty good reasons and rationales coming from this is why we believe this and trying to understand, well, if that's crazy to me, why does that actually make sense to you? Right. And, and that's, that is a critical question because particularly when you're reading other people's code or trying to get into somebody else's design or everything else, being able to work out not just what they're doing, but why they did it is an incredibly valuable insight. Because once you can do that, you can start predicting how things will be, where things are. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think that comes down to the idea of saying, as you say, my common sense is my common sense. So when I'm working with other people, I have to kind of like put that to some extent on the back burner and keep it running as a kind of filter. But at the same time, try and work out what their common sense is. Because if I can do that, then we are in a way better position when it comes to communicating. And again, context, context is absolutely key. You know, you have come up with your viewpoints and your approaches from where you've worked and the experiences that you've had, and your coworker may have had a completely different route to get there. You know, if one of you has only ever worked at startups and the, only, the other one's only worked at large bureaucratic organizations, you're going to have very different outlooks on what gets done, what's effective, how to play politics, whatever it might be. So this question of context is absolutely critical. You know, and this is one of those reasons why I really, really hate the phrase best practices, right? Because people are like, oh, is that a best practice? This is a best practice. It's like, how long is a piece of string, right? It's an incomplete thought. This is a best practice for who, under what circumstances, in what context. And it's not really best. It's more a question because this is engineering after all. What are the trade-offs? What are the consequences? That's a much more interesting discussion to have. It's like, well, here's yeah, the, the, the phrase should really be what are the appropriate practices, not all of the best practices. Yeah. And I mean, I go to these conferences and there are absolutely stunning talks as we move more and more into the cloudy, big data-y kind of thing. Then people from Amazon and Netflix and Facebook give these talks on how they manage like 100,000 machine clusters and what their data analytics look like. And people go away from these talks thinking, okay, I know what tools they use now, so I'm going to have put them on my project, right? Where their project is two people in a basement putting together yet another social site. And it's totally inappropriate. You're going to spend the next two years trying to work out how to configure all these 17 different wild tools to solve a problem you don't actually have. So you're not sitting there trying to copy success because you can never copy success. Instead, you have to make your own success by just following basic fundamental principles. And we've been talking about context a lot. 
and double checking your my experience is one of the things that I really took away from the first edition when I read it was the learn a new programming language every year. Now, did I make the every year part? No, not really. It's probably been every couple of years I've picked something up and how well have I actually learned it? I don't know. But I do see where some of those principles, either cross languages and cross paradigms, whether it's, as you mentioned, the functional versus OO versus some of this other stuff. What are some of the things that you've seen when you go out and you look across all these different contexts of languages or tools and things that have been done in the past 20 years that have at a high level stayed the same or things that have made you realize we're in a new context now or we're in a context that we were 20, 30, 40 years ago, back when everybody's working on mainframes with the cloud, but it's slightly different. What is some of the stuff that you've seen progress as you've gone through this and how has that affected potentially some of the rewrites of the book when you're looking back on seeing potentially another cycle or two of server to client, client to server, fat clients, fat servers, back and forth as you've gone through this stuff? Yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, all of the above. So there's different levels of that, right? There's a lot of stuff that at a very low level has just changed and evolved. For the most part, there were a lot of examples in the first edition that used for loop kind of structures, for i equals zero kind of thing. And that was a, a handy pedagogical tool to talk about invariance or this or that, fence post errors. And that's nice and well, but no one really uses that construct in modern languages, right? Use a loop comprehension or a, an iterator or something like that. So you've got that, uh, he's crossing his fingers. <laughs> you know, for the most part, right, you know, some of these low-level techniques have become higher-order techniques, have been replaced by, by something higher-order. So that's definitely something that's changed. But then, you know, as you, as you were leaning toward the, is it on the server, is it on the client, do you have the kind of mainframe versus client approach or this or that? We talk about that a little bit, and that kind of stuff gets a little cyclical. It's not really a straight progression from A to B. It's A halfway to B and back again and, and around, and that's almost the style of the day, I think, the, the sort of flavor of the day. Wait. Has there been anything that you've noticed that seems to be changing to be more directional than being cyclical? You have a couple of whole tips about concurrency now, and we're being in a multi-computer multi-core, multi-processor environment, that seems like that's something that is probably going to stick around at least a little bit longer for some of those tips. Are there any things that you've noticed besides the concurrency stuff that's kind of seems to be more long-term pattern potential future going than some of the smaller cyclical stuff that we've seen in the past? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think the trend towards the cloud in the broader sense I don't just mean buying EC2 instances, but I'm talking about the idea of an application being a federation of services that you're going to borrow from various providers on the cloud and basically integrate together. I think that's a, a really interesting approach. I mean, if you look at some of the example code that people are using now in blog posts and in books and this kind of stuff, they are putting together stuff that would be mind-blowingly impossible to have done even five years ago. But yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, we're going to stick a, a bit of AI behind a voice recognition system and use that to mutate images or something. And now you can just do that. So in that way, I think there's definitely an arrow of time that's you know, never going to get reversed. And as with every arrow of time, what that really means is that entropy is going to increase and it's just going to get more chaotic. But I think what Andy is saying is that although the technologies change and the assumptions change, the underlying thing is people. And the underlying thing of people, really, we're just as dumb and primitive as we were 10,000 years ago. You know, we just have to have better toys. So I think that the nature there is that there's always going to be this kind of like dialectic thing going on where we synthesize something and then we destroy it and then we synthesize it again and then destroy it. And I think as people, we're just like programmed to do that. Everybody always has a better idea. And only after they've spent six years implementing it, do they realize, oh, it actually has the same problems as the thing I didn't like. So there's that cycle, which is in a way independent of the technology cycle. And then 
I noticed the book, you're studying a lot of the modern languages for things like the programming languages that you learn. I noticed you're putting in a variety of languages into your examples. I'm assuming that's in the hopes of getting people to at least get a little bit of outside familiar with it and make it not look so strange. What are some of those things that you found over these years that kind of made you pick some of those languages that you're saying, hey, here's some to look for? Because I believe at one point, I don't know if it was a, just interviews with one of you, because I don't remember it being in this beta book and the previous version I don't remember was going from Java to C Sharp is not picking a new language when you pick a new language in a year. So what were some of those things that if you're going to encourage people when you look, and I kind of know where Dave has fallen based off his recent activity of looking at languages, but what are those things that you kind of try and say, here's how to categorize a language to know that there's something different enough about it that it makes it worth looking at? First of all, I want to comment on your, your phrase of picking modern languages because that's kind of, I find that kind of funny because when we did the first edition, we went through exactly what you were just talking about, picking some interesting languages to try to promote and show their features. So we would show things from Eiffel because that showed some interesting things you could do with design by contract and having the language enforce contracts at a compiler level. That was an interesting feature of that particular language. And we had we had some other oddballs in there like Tom and I forget whatever else. Oh, Tom, I forgot about that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, everyone did. That, that, that's that's yeah. that's that's kind of the funny thing. Like, so you go back at all these languages that we had featured back in the first edition, and most of them are in the dustbin of history. No one's heard of them these days. They didn't take off. They had interesting features uh, unto themselves, but they didn't happen to catch the imagination, and they've gone by the wayside. So, and let me, let me just jump in quickly, because I think, in a way, you asked two questions, and Andy's answering the first of the ones, which is the languages in the book. And I just wanted to say, I really don't care what languages are in the book, because almost nothing we do in the book is really specific to languages. You know, and when I get comments like, there's no PHP in the book, how could you not have PHP? Then really what that's saying is, I don't understand what you've written, because if it's not in PHP, it's not programming. And in a way, I made a conscious decision in my language choices to shuffle them. And just like, I will switch from Python to Ruby to Elixir to Java to whatever else and not even mention it because it doesn't matter. It's all just language at that level. But then the second question is back to learning a language a year. How do you choose a language and how do you know it's the right language? And the answer is really simple. If you don't understand it, if it confuses you, if it makes you uncomfortable, then that's the language you should learn. So if you knew Java and you look at C-sharp and you say, oh, okay, I can see how this maps across, then as a language, maybe it's not the best one to learn. As an ecosystem, if you're like a Mac developer or an Android developer, it might be useful to learn C-sharp if it means also learning you know, the entire .NET ecosystem. But as a language, yeah, maybe that's not the same. Whereas you may say, you know, I've looked at Haskell about six times and it's always confused me. Well, guess what? That's the language you should learn. And I think it's important to point out that every language has its little unique additions to the world. And that's well worth kind of picking up on and knowing just for the sake of that. Because, you know, fundamentally, every language is trying to solve some set of problems. Mostly it's the same problems, but they'll take a different approach to doing that. So Erlang and Elixir have a very different approach to concurrency than, than say, Clojure does or Java does or, you know, whatever. And the more of that you get exposed to, the more of that you realize that there are different ways of approaching these common problems, then, you know, the better educated you'll be, the better you'll be able to solve the problems that come up on your own. And that's really the sort of the critical part of it, because I think one of the big traps we fall into as programmers, because of time pressure and everything else, here's a problem. Okay, uh, what's the first idea that pops to my head? All right, let's implement it that way. Boom. Right. First thing that pops into your head. And that's a really, really terrible way to go about it. You should always have maybe at least, I don't know, three different ways of implementing it to try to get some clarity of, well, is this really going to be the way that's going to work out for me or not? Should I try this other thing? You really don't want to go with your first gut reaction. And if you've only ever known one programming language, if you've only ever known 
Java or PHP or whatever it might be, then you only have less than a tenth of a percent of what might be available to you to try to approach and solve the problem you're facing. I think there's another side to that coin, which is that there's, I guess there's the professional side and then there's the personal development side of a developer. And when I say learn a language a year, that's talking to the personal development side. That's talking to the, this is how you get better as a developer. At the same time, I've seen teams that will switch languages on every project simply because, hey, it looks interesting. Let's go do that. And that's a really dumb thing to do because it's building up a lot of maintenance issues and incompatibilities and stuff that, and just general support level issues that you really don't want to be facing. So I think sometimes there's like the, the pragmatic solution for projects that you do is to go with that particular flow and then look for opportunities to advocate away from that. So you're not going to put the next bet the farm project onto a brand new language unless you've got a really, really, really good reason for it. But if you've got some internal project that you know, is only going to be seen by the salespeople or whatever, then yeah, maybe that's a great opportunity for exploring and showing the company what you think the benefits are for that language. So I think the idea that Addy was saying that it's to make you better, but I'm not too sure you want to be forcing that on other people in your team as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to context. You have to be aware of what solution you're offering for what, right? And it's been 20 years. So as you've gone through, were there any tips in that book after you were reviewing them that fell kind of on the opposite side of dry where people picked up dry, they caught on, sadly it caught on unbeknownst to how you were intending it to be used, but it got on and got used and got diluted and everything. Were there any things that you went through as you were reviewing the book that you realize this is really important and it didn't seem to probably get as much traction as we would have liked 20 years later when we're doing this? And these are the things that even if you don't emphasize it in the book directly that you'd like to be out there that says, take a second look at this stuff. These are a couple tips to take a second look at and actually think about a little bit more. I think there was a lot of that actually where we came across something that we felt was interesting and important and amplified it, brought it up to a, a larger level. It, maybe it didn't have a tip to call it out. And so we, we made a tip or even extended it into a section. There was definitely some of that. There was also some that sort of went the other way where the advice that we gave, again, talking about context, it was appropriate for the time, but not appropriate now. So you know, one thing that really um, struck me when we read it the first time was we were talking about unit testing was still relatively new and in its infancy. Our book came out within a couple months of Kent Beck's first XP uh, book. And so we're talking about the joys of unit testing and saying, yes, you should do this. You should go out and, you know, because it's not widely supported yet, go write your own unit testing framework for your favorite language so that you can do this. And 20 years ago, that was maybe reasonable advice. Now, no, no, for God's sakes, do not do that. That's, that's exactly the wrong thing to do today. So some of that we had to dampen or modify. And then others, as you say, you know, we amped up because, yes, this is a good idea. There were a couple of things. It was kind of funny that I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles were in the book because they're things that Dave and I talk about. We had it in our conference talks and, and you know, we've discussed it. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's in the book. And it wasn't. <laughs> we actually, it was in some article that we had done you know, a couple of years later or something like that. So we pulled a little bit of that, things I think should have been in the book in the first place, but didn't happen to make it and did come out somewhere else along the line. So we pulled those in, again, to amplify them because they were important topics and needed to be included. Yeah. And there's one in particular for me that the horse has been flogged so much that, it, I mean, it's basically been reduced to dust, but that's blackboard systems. It was a good idea 20 years ago, and I still think it's a good idea now. And so I thought long and hard about whether or not the Blackboard Systems tip should still be in the book because they never really took off, or at least not in that form. You could argue that some of the current message bus systems are actually Blackboard systems, but even then they're 
way too complicated. But in the end of the day, it just struck me, okay, let's just keep that in there because at some point, I really hope it's going to, you know, someone somewhere is going to say, oh, let me investigate that. And it becomes the spark that lets it ignite and take off. So yeah, there's things like that where I wish that people had paid more attention or at least told me why it wouldn't work. And so as there more, probably there's more like that. And because this is functional geekery, there was reading the beta book so far, I, in the middle of the concurrency chapters, because I've just hit the blackboard. What have you found? Because I know it's not just you, but a number of people have been, even going back to the gang of four, they said, hey, stop inheritance, use composition over inheritance. You've got that as don't be tied to inheritance, it couples you. What are some of the things that you found relating to the more kicking into mainstream of functional programming? Because I see you allude to some of the stuff, the pipeline transformations. Again, nothing new. Unix has been doing it for years and years and years. And what are some of those things from that the functional programming audience may appreciate in this book that you're starting to emphasize and trying to get broader knowledge out across everybody? One of the things that's a reflection of our growing experience over the last 20 years is that we've come to understand that some of the things that we were saying, there's actually kind of like an underlying principle behind them. And one of those is the idea of what makes good design. And there's all sorts of like magic techniques and acronyms and all these other things about how to make your design good. But we think that the underlying metric for good design is simply that things that are well-designed are easier to change. They're easier to adapt to what the user actually wants. And that's the only rule of design, really, is do things that make it easier to change. Now, when you think about OO programming, I was a big fan of OO. But at the same time, as I was doing it, I kept bumping into situations where it really got pretty messy, where the fact that the state was being managed in these little isolated chunks sounds good in theory, but when it comes to tracking down the 17 different people that have some kind of influence on this, it got to be pretty hairy. When I started programming in more functional style, then I discovered that making state explicit and more to the point, making state transformation explicit, decoupled me in a kind of radical way. No longer was my code and my state all one big ball of mud, but instead the state had an independent existence to the code. And in the same way that the Unix pipeline allows you to put together these little small sharp utilities in ways that the original creators of them never imagined, the same thing is true when you start writing in a functional style. And it's not necessarily just pipelines. It's this idea that you have pure functions that simply don't have their own state that create copies of data having applied transformations to it. Once you get into that mindset, you really don't want to go back, you know? And so I think from the functional point of view, even if I'm not sitting there shouting at people, use Haskell, what I, the advice that we give is more easily implemented in a functional language. Let's put it that way. If you take the kind of longer view, right, this is still a very young, you know, it's brand new. We're still embryonic. We're still trying to figure out how do you manage complexity? You know, we thought, hey, okay, procedural was great. That's a nice way to start people learning. You can have them, you know, plot the little turtle and tell it to go here and go there. That's good. And Oh, now we've got all this extra stuff. We've got, we have to hide the information. We need information hiding. So let's shove it away in the corners of OO, which always, it always struck me that that was kind of like having a bunch of actors out there with really long memories who are now out gunning to get you. Uh, that, that's, that's like my current view of OO. Uh, so then, okay, now we grab onto to functional. Okay, that's better. But it's not perfect, right? It's got trade-offs and consequences as well. We will at some point maybe hit on a better way to manage complexity, to be able to deal with it, to get our tiny heads around it. We're not there yet. Maybe in the, you know, 20 years from now, when we do the 40th anniversary uh, edition, maybe we'll have something to say about that then, but we're still working on it. And again, I know some of these aren't strictly functional programming paradigm stuff, 
no shared mutable state, object-oriented, functional, whatever. And as Dave mentioned, some of that stuff is just easier to do in functional because it takes that ability away from you and you're essentially constrained and I guess back to the art of constraints and limits imply new creativity that you can go with. But I didn't know if that was something that you were seeing that says, based off all the trends that we've seen, there are other certain things here in the way things are lining up that may make some of these things more viable or you're already seeing some of the handwriting on the walls for functional programming that says, yeah, some of this stuff, it's got good. It's better than where we came from, but the writing's on the wall as well that some of these things may be going away too based off where the paradigm's going and paradigm shifting too. Definitely, definitely. One of the things I'd say is that there is really no one right way of doing things. And in particular, the functional style is absolutely fantastic for the insides of your programs. But let's face it, the real world is mutable and the real world is not as pure as we would like it to be. And so Haskell has, you know, IO and this kind of stuff to try and isolate it from that. The functional thing only solves part of the puzzle. And the bigger puzzle, particularly now that we're looking at a more cloudy kind of environment, is things like discovery, things like configuration, things like security and authentication. And those are areas where really a lot of thought has got to be given. Right now, all of those things we do in a kind of very ad hoc way, and we are paying the price for it. So I think that the language approach, whether it's functional or whether it's procedural or declarative, whatever it might be, is kind of like a Band-Aid. It's easy to apply because it's something obvious that we can do. It's not one of the kind of like hard problems. But we're going to have to start addressing those hard problems really pretty quickly because otherwise it's going to get totally unmanageable very, very quickly. And I bring this up because, yes, this is a functional programming podcast, but also realizing that it may not be the answer to everything. So we make sure we give ourselves that gut check, as you said earlier, that says, where could we be wrong on thinking and loving functional languages if we're doing this? And if we think a lot of the problems are solved by this, where are blind spots that we might not be being solved? I mean, I used to go around saying I loved Ruby, and I really did have a pretty cool relationship with it. But at the same time, I was ridiculously unfaithful to it. I would be out there trying hundreds of different languages. I think it would be a big, big mistake for any of your listeners to consider themselves to be functional programmers. In the same way, it would be very much a mistake for any woodworker to consider themselves to be a chisel user. I think that there are thousands of tools and we have to have a knowledge of many of them and we have to be able to learn about others that we'll need. You don't say I'm a functional programmer because that's the old, you know, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail and that's just stupid. So the trick is to get good at it, but don't become a religious zealot about it. Always remember that Your main goal is to get better at what you do. And to do that, you're going to have to explore and try things out and synthesize things. And limiting yourself to one particular paradigm is pretty much guaranteed to make you obsolete over time. That's absolutely, absolutely critical. It's always been a pet peeve of mine when people over-identify with their programming language or their ecosystem or their preferred paradigm. You know, you get folks that, oh, I'm a Java programmer, or I'm a PHP programmer, I'm a whatever it might be. No, that's... Or, or, or I do test-first development, which is my definite, it, you know? No, no, your, your role is problem solver, right? Writing software is an act of co-creation with the users and the sponsors. You are building something together. That's the skill set you need to work on. And yes, as Dave said, There's thousands of languages. There's all kinds of different approaches. There's all different ways of managing this. And any of the particular technology or approaches that we're talking about now will probably be completely outdated in 20 years, right? You're going to have a a jack in the side of your head with some AI-fueled assistant named Clippy helping you. Who knows, right? We don't know what it's going to be, but it will not look like it does today. 
programming 20 years ago did not look like it does now. 20 years before that, it didn't look like that. Actually, uh, I, think, I think you'll have a jack in all of your orifices and you'll be lying in a nutrient bath. <laughs> Sign me up. So, yeah, you know, you don't, you're not a Java programmer. You're not a, a functional pro- You're not a TDD programmer. You're a problem solver. And these are the tools that we use. Mostly it's software, but not exclusively. There's a classic story from Dave's background where he solved a problem uh, using sticky dots. It didn't even, you know, big business problem. You know, could have been a multi-million dollar project. He talked himself out of it using sticky dots. Didn't even need software. And that's really what our profession is about. We're here to solve problems. Sometimes we make them too, but you know, <laughs> mostly we're trying to solve them. But. So you make a good point about, and I've heard others and probably Dave at one point with the talk about sticky dots of sometimes the best software to write is no software at all and just find another way. But Fewer bugs there to be sure. And on the topic of bugs and finding things, as we get towards wrapping up, are there any calls of when we write software for the actual software writing that you think that we need to watch out for as we continue from the language, all of the language, different languages you've played with, all the different things you've seen that say in the book, you advocate design by contract. We talk about reducing limitations and people talk about the, all the bugs with C or C++ and pointer math and being able to reference, dereference memory and things like that. Are there any other things that you would think that as we go through and with the discipline that we need to be more disciplined about? Absolutely. And the biggest one, and I think the newest shift in concern from the original book is how could this code be used against me or against the user or against the company? How could a bad actor take this and exploit it some way against us? That really wasn't a concern 20 years ago. That's maybe the overriding concern today. Where a bad actor could even mean your customer. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's a real sea change from the way we did things in the old days where, you know, we were just struggling to be sure to free the memory we allocated, you know, or, you know, we didn't have enough RAM on the machines. So we had to deal with memory overlays and, and keep all that straight. So it's a different world now. We don't have to worry about those low level details, but you do have to worry about state sponsored terrorism, enemy nation states, hackers on the other side of the world whoever it might be, your own users, as Dave says, you know, whatever comes up, any flaw that exposes itself that way is now an opportunity that someone could exploit against you. It's not just flaw, too. It's also you have to give some thought to the, hate to use the word, but the morality behind the software that you're writing. You know, so yeah. it may not have any bugs at all, but if it can be used or if it's intended to be used to do bad things, things you are not comfortable with, then you have a responsibility there. You can't just like do the Nuremberg defense. It doesn't work anymore. Exactly. And, you know, we are in a position now, as we said towards the beginning of this podcast, we're no longer hacking on a hobby project in the garage. Software has more than eaten the world. It's propping it up. Outside of the uh, Amish furniture industry, I can't think of any other sector that you know, has not been heavily disrupted or affected by software and, and, and computers. It is literally everywhere. It is in the fabric of our lives, and we are responsible for that. We're responsible for every step of that. And that's one of the key points we make at the end of the book is that's a wonderful ability, a wonderful sense of power. You can change the future. And the downside of that is you can change the future. <laughs> So, you know, the responsibility is absolutely yours. Don't tread on any butterflies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I saw that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's like that's the that's the big 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 headline statement. Let me get a little bit more prosaic just so we can end this without feeling good about ourselves. You were talking about things that people are doing in day-to-day coding that they need to be more careful about. And one of my big concerns at the moment is the use of libraries and frameworks that we're looking at a typical project could well have over a thousand dependencies. And if you look at why these dependencies are used, quite often it's so that I can write one function call. The number of people that bring in underscore or something else 
just so they can use one, you know, like a, some particular form of reduce or something is unbelievable. And what you're doing is you're opening up your code, first of all, to just dependency hell, but also potential bugs, security holes, everything else. So my personal like down in the, in the trenches coding thing is stop with all the dependencies and just try and work out whether or not the cost of bringing in something that then brings in 20 other things that then each bring in 20 other things is worth that two lines of code that you'd otherwise have to write. Great advice to think about on both ends in realizing that in some of the projects I work on day to day even, and looking at where the projects are with some of the dependencies we've pulled in. Since we're wrapping up, I want to give you a chance to give the formal plug of the book any details that people may be able to do about when to find it, when to look for it, where to get it, best place to get it, any other projects you each have coming up. You probably both do a lot of speaking experiences, so I don't know that you list necessarily list all of them, but if there's any place to go find where people can find you in the future or just any other projects or things you want to put on people's radar and think people should actually just take a specific look at, if nothing else than for novelty, I'll give this chance for you to pitch whatever you want to pitch and promote whatever you want to promote. I think that was enough questions that it blew my plus or seven items in short-term memory, but let me, let me go back to the beginning and start there. So the Pragmatic Programmer 20th Anniversary Edition is currently available. It came out in beta on May 8th, 2019. It is currently and exclusively available from pragprog.com, P-R-A-G, P-R-O-G. That's the home of the Pragmatic Bookshelf, our publishing company. And we're wrapping up the beta sort of as we speak, and we'll have the um, more or less final print version very shortly. So that's available in ebook from there in PDF, Mobi, and EPUB formats for your various readers. We will hand it over to Pearson, who is the actual publisher, and they will have it out in hardcover later this fall. Last I heard, I think it was mid-September, somewhere between mid-September and October. And it's interesting. I think we chose to go hardcover this time because one of the interesting complaints that we got about the book over these years was people would loan it out to their friends, to their team members, and it got so much use that it would get tattered, it would get dog-eared. So we figured hardcover would give it a little bit of armor, a little bit of oomph, considering how much traffic and wear and tear it sees. So that'll be out this fall. For personal projects, I have no idea what I'm going to do next, but I never do. Kind of accidentally wrote a science fiction book uh, a couple of years ago, and then more purposely wrote a sequel to it. So I've, I've got two sci-fi books out there. You know, we're both Dave and I are always doing interesting little projects. Um, I do things for Halloween with raspberry pies and pneumatics and ghosts that fly out at you, that sort of thing. I play music in local bands, occasionally record an album or two. We try to sort of stay busy. So that's what I'm up to. Uh, if you're really curious, my personal homepage on the web is at toolshed.com. And I've got a slash now page there. You can see whatever I happen to be up to at any point in time. And there's links to all the books and stuff from there. And then again, pragprog.com for the 20th anniversary edition and all the other wonderful books that we're currently publishing. I write code. <laughs> I, do, I do a little bit of that. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of like, like you said, it's like constant little gadfly looking at different stuff. I have a couple of underlying themes. One is to try to get the world to think about things as transformational services. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, about to give up on that because I've been trying for so long and I'm like, seem to be beating my head against a brick wall. I'm really interested in corrupting the youth. So I'm doing a fair amount of teaching. I teach a high school class remotely, which is kind of interesting. They're up in, uh, in Washington State and I'm in Texas. So I do that. It's not like a full class, but I do like a once a week for a, a term. And I'm teaching down at SMU, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. And they somewhat stupidly gave me a second class. So I'm teaching both uh, a functional programming class, and I'm also teaching a class on programming languages. And they do not know what they've let themselves in for. It's going to be fun. 
And then you mentioned toolshed.com. What are the best places to follow along for you, Dave, and keep updated? Oh, just pragdave.me, P-R-A-G-D-A-V-E dot me. And I'll get links from there and your social media accounts because I follow you on social media and we'll get those links included in the show notes and everything we talked about. How remarkably organized you are. What a time to be alive, really. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having us. Thank you for being guests. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for logo. And once again, thank you, Dave and Andy, for taking your time and talking with me today. It was a pleasure talking with you and catching up about the history of the Pragmatic Programmer and seeing how it's evolved over the years and looking forward to when it comes out on hardcover and maybe tracking both of you down and getting a signature on that and one of the original version printings that I've got on both of them as well. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. Totally our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.